when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, someone in the 2016 campaign did something crazy and unprecedented. And for once... It's not something that reality television star Donald Trump did. I mean, okay, he offered up his fair share of deep weirdness this week. Don't get me wrong. But for once, he was bested in the arena of inexplicableness by his rival Ted Cruz, who named Carly Fiorina as his running mate. Did he vet Fiorina? Does he understand that he's not winning the nomination? Is his campaign now just an act of live action role playing? We will try to figure this out. Meanwhile, you may have noticed that in American politics, a lot of people lie. You may have also noticed that a lot of people get caught lying and yet somehow retain the public status they need to simply continue lying. It's almost as if lying were an industry unto itself, right? Well, joining us this week to confirm this thesis is Ari Rabenhoft, fellow at the People for American Way and author of a new book, Lies Incorporated, The World of Post-Truth Politics. Finally, the lead water crisis in Flint, Michigan, has received a lot of deserved attention, and it's shown a light on the structural problems that led to the crisis in Flint in the first place. But as you probably know, the need for lead abatement is a national problem. We return to the topic today to get a sense of how widespread the problem might be and how other cities and towns in America are confronting it. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Samantha Lockman. We'll have all of this, plus we'll ask the question, are the presidential primaries now over? Here's what happened first. Greetings and welcome, my fellow Americans and boys and girls worldwide. Welcome back to another edition of So That Happened, your weekly digest and uh, complaint department about American politics. My name is Jason Lincoln. I'm the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post. And joining me, as always, in these endeavors are our pals, Arthur Delaney. Hi. Hi, Arthur. Hey. Hey. And Zach Carter. Hey, guys. It's great to see you both. So uh, this week, we had another really large primary night with multiple northeastern states uh, people are we're calling it the Acela primary because of the Acela train that runs through uh, that area. A lot of people in the news were mispronouncing Acela, um, which is cool. I'm pretty cool with Acela being mispronounced. We're not the center. It's of the, a train for rich people. Yeah, we're not the center of the fucking universe. Good for them for mispronouncing it. Um, but it was a big night for the people who have already established themselves as front runners in the in their respective races. Uh, GOP nominee uh, or candidate for nominee Donald Trump. We're getting to the point where I'm going to make about this whole process. But candidate Donald Trump swept all five states. Uh, Hillary Clinton came in and did almost the same. She lost Rhode Island to Bernie Sanders. I think that it was a little bit touch and go in Connecticut, if I recall correctly. It was close, yeah. Until the end. Uh, But she claimed big prizes in Maryland, Pennsylvania. Uh, And and, uh, what can we say about this other than the fact that I think that in all but the shouting, perhaps now the primaries are over. I think on the GOP side, it's maybe not quite completely sealed up for Donald Trump yet. But, I mean, he needs to win 46% of the remaining delegates. To, to put that in perspective, he won like like 95% of the delegates that were at stake last night. Right. Um, not, not all states are going to be this uh, sympathetic to him. But he only needs to, he needs to win less than half of the delegates that are left in order to clinch the nomination before a convention. So his, his situation is much better now than it was two weeks ago. Uh, and even if he doesn't clinch the nomination, it's going to be really difficult for the GOP to say, okay, this guy who won more than two-thirds of the delegates, compare, or, you know, won twice as many delegates as the next guy available, um, you know, we, we're going to take it away from him and, and pick, pick somebody else. What's interesting to me is that this week's outcome on paper, we saw it coming 
probably for like months. Oh yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And but we have to actually go through it because people are basically waiting to see if someone like screams or faints or like <laughs> dies. And nothing there were no big disruptions. Uh that's the thing. I mean, Donald Trump is always at his most we're going to use this word even though it's a even though it's a sham media word, quote, presidential when he's not facing any adversity. And since he pivoted out of Wisconsin where Cruz did beat him. He's been on very friendly turf, hasn't had anything to get worked up about. It's still kind of amazing how worked up he's gotten about certain things. Um, but one of those things is kind of interesting. Can't blame him for getting worked up about. Going into uh, this week's primary, um, Ted Cruz and John Kasich uh, announced that they were going to collude in a scheme to deny Trump the nomination. And right away I was thinking, you don't tell people out loud you're colluding in a scheme. You just do the scheme. Anecdotally, I read accounts of people who weren't necessarily uh, off the fence on one side or the other go Trump because Cruz and Kasich were running this kind of weird deal. And then they didn't even really run the deal. Right. It was awful. John Kasich was asked about it on TV. He was on the phone and they're like, John Kasich, who should people vote for in Indiana? And he like burped and mash the buttons on his phone. <laughs> We're watching this program right now. Your message come primary day there is to vote for... Look, I'm, I'm not getting into that, Matt. I'm not, not... Things are not so plain and simple. I don't tell my voters what to do. <laughs> so bad. I think he got, he got burned by Matt Lauer on the Today Show. And if, Come on, man. You're in a position where Matt Lauer is burning you. It's... It's it's tough. It's but, really bad. Yes. But speaking of Burns, the Democratic side, uh, you know, I think Bernie Sanders has been mathematically facing an extremely difficult road since the beginning of March. Really, I think since he Super needed seventy one percent of remaining delegates going into last yeah. night. Um, but what's interesting is I mean, if so we're using the super delegate count on top of everything. Blah, but blah, it's blah. I mean it's mathematically not impossible for him to win, but it is almost impossible. Sure. Uh, so so Hillary Clinton, for all intents and purposes, has the Democratic presidential nomination locked up. Um, but I think what's unless she like screams or falls down, <laughs> or yeah, yeah. I mean, unless there's like some weird health problem or something. Well, you know, um, the dream of the burners is that the indictment coming down from the FBI is coming any day now. Right. right. No. Obama's totally going to indict Hillary Clinton. <laughs> uh, <laughs> makes sense. I think it's uh, J- Jamal Bowie wrote this in Slate this week that that it's there is real value to Sanders staying in the race for progressive policy purposes that not only, I mean, I think for, for burners who, who are, I think are more ideologically sympathetic to, uh, to Sanders than, than Jamel is, you know, there's actually the, the opportunity to maybe get some leverage, some personnel out of Clinton at the convention, things like that. Uh, but Jamel, who's, I don't think quite as, as like psyched about Bernie's messages is like, you know, the diehard Bernie bros out there are, uh, points out that it's really valuable for Democratic Party politics just to have something out there building a movement. We talked about the sort of like future casting of Bernie Sanders campaign last week, and you weren't here for that. And I want to bring it up again mm-hmm. um, uh, because I hear what you're saying. And I and I and I also would definitely accord Bernie Sanders the right to stay in the primary and to continue his work uh, because he's talking about things that matter to a lot of people, including myself. But in terms of movement building. Let's consider that last night, Donna Edwards lost to Chris Van Hollen. Could have perhaps, you've you've actually studied his turnout effect. Mm-hmm. She could have used some Bernie Sanders sauce in that race. Uh, Will Bunch from Philly.com, a fine uh, political writer, if you if you if you sample good political writing, you probably encounter Will Bunch's work. Um, he told the story about a guy uh, who who is the mayor of Braddock, Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, John Fetterman who uh, has a policy brief that's enormously similar to Sanders. Followers, diehard followers that, uh, that really uh, sort of match Sanders' profile. He could have used Sanders' help last night, too, in the Senate race. He was always a long shot, but it could have expanded his base beyond. When is Sanders going to start in this campaign actually helping to build this movement. I think that's based on some really faulty premises. Um, Is it? Well, the idea being Bernie Sanders Sanders should help people down ballot. Yeah, Bernie Sanders won three counties in Maryland. Three. He he got crushed by Hillary Clinton. His his support would not have helped Donna Edwards. Donna Edwards did better than Bernie Sanders did in, in Maryland. 
Um, he, he, it, was, it was just not a, it was a terrible state for him. So I don't think that would have helped there. He does, in fact, raise money for House candidates who are, who are progressives. Uh, but I th- also think you have to point out that, like, he's still running a presidential campaign that costs a lot of money to run, and it's cost him a lot of money to stay competitive. He, spends, he outspent Hillary Clinton two to one in the last stretch of the race, and he doesn't have a super PAC to help him out. So money money is a little bit tighter with him than it is with Hillary Clinton. Well, he's now if, he's, if he has no shot at the nomination, now he can do things like go campaign with Zephyr. Oh sure, I mean he, you could yes you can do that if bring, he's interested in that. Well, I'm skeptical as to whether there, he you is. Know, there is there is a, an entire campaign trail out there. I mean people people don't say why why isn't Hillary Clinton campaigning with Zephyr Teachout? But why isn't she? Zephyr uh, Teachout is a great progressive woman candidate. I wouldn't expect Hillary Clinton to to campaign with Zephyr. I, I, I don't I, think they share many of the same views out, or outlooks on things. I think I think one reason I think it's just a little bit I, the, the charge that he is not building a movement because he's still running a campaign. Uh, I, I I find that just a little bit uh, a little bit of a cheap shot. Fair play, fair play, but still we're still talking about future casting. What happens with Sanders afterwards? Is do you believe that he is sort of? Uh, instructing or informing the burners in such a way that they're going to now look down ballot for their uh, next Sanders-esque candidate? Do you think that he's uh, building a movement that's going to see many of these people run for office? Because the Democratic Party right now has no game on state legislature level or the county board level or the school board level. And these are the venues in which movements and presidential benches are built over time. Republicans are very, very good at turning out their base to vote in unsexy elections. Their voters are amped to go vote for county board seats. They're amped to go vote for state legislatures. And a lot in a lot of cases, these Republicans run unopposed. There isn't even another idea in the race. Well, let's, let's just put it, I mean, he's he's been raising money for progressive candidates. He's been doing fundraising emails for them. And I think he's also shown those candidates and people who would be more more aligned with establishment politics in general, that you can run an effective and credible nationwide campaign without taking money from big donors. So he sets an example, but he's a guy who stays in his lane. Like, he'll go back to the Senate and continue doing the things that he always did, which were things he basically did by himself for most of his career. Yeah, well, he plays he plays an inside game when he's in the Senate. Uh, but the I, I think for, for, for the, the, the purpose of of movement building um, to to say that there is no effect from someone running a, a credible campaign against someone who was effectively handed the nomination on a silver platter for to, to really really challenge this and show that you can do this without without big money that that gives him leverage at the convention to to require progressive policies and it sure. me, and it means that if if establishment candidates don't do things that the base wants to do it, there is clear, concrete evidence for future candidates, future challengers, that you can challenge those candidates, and you can you can knock them out of out of office, without having to rely on the on the super elite to do so. One thing we should talk about because it was some good news from last night, and it pertains to you mean from Tuesday night. I do mean from Tuesday night. Thanks, Arthur. I forgot that we exist out of time for a moment. Um, Tuesday night, uh, one bit of good news, and it pertains to the show. Uh, Jamie Raskin, who uh, who was our guest, uh, prevailed in his race in the 8th Congressional District in Maryland, beating uh, um, Kathleen Matthews mm-hmm. and David Trone, who spent somewhere in the order of 10 to $12 million trying to win this race and uh, drew drew heavily from the parts of that district that weren't Montgomery County. Um, good news all around? I mean, there is an example of a Sanders-esque candidate succeeding. He'll probably be in the House of Representatives. Oh, he almost certainly will because the district is so liberal. Um, I think what's interesting about that is that Jamie Raskin won with 33.7% of the vote. Yeah, there was enough. Some, uh, and there so, was something like nine candidates in that, in that primary. Yeah, and he won despite the fact that, uh, pretty, that Kathleen Matthews, who's the wife of MSNBC's Chris Matthews, had locked up just a, a ton of establishment endorsements. She's a former Marriott executive. Um, you know, she had she had a lot of money behind her and a lot of support from from basically Hillary Clinton voters and Hillary Clinton's team. I mean, Hillary Clinton trounced Bernie Sanders statewide. So um, 
she ended up kind of splitting the money vote with, uh, with the Trone. rich guy vote with, yeah. with David Trone. Um, so I think part of that is just sort of sort of uh, good luck for progressives there and that there were two non-progressive candidates vying to take him down. Yeah. Um, people know who he is, though, because he was in the state legislature. And I mean, very, he, very effective in the state legislature. Right. Too. Yeah. It's 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 a personal pleasure to me to see candidates like Matthews and Trone lose. I, I'm always happy when they people like that don't end up in Congress and don't end up in the uh, liberal party. Um, Maryland was interesting. There was also the Edwards Van Hollen. And yeah, people tried. Was, it was mm-hmm. people tried to map the Clinton Sanders dynamic onto that, and you couldn't really. Just can't. But, <laughs> I mean, well, part of that's because Clinton trounced so thoroughly in the state. But it, uh, you know, you had an establishment guy and a more progressive. Where, uh, but the identity politics were a little bit reversed because the progressive was a uh, uh, African American woman, right? Uh, and and yet Van Hollen, uh, I, mean, I mean, Van Hollen won a, by a pretty wide margin. But you know, there are only three places where you're really going to find people in in Maryland. There's the the very white northern Maryland, northern suburbs of DC. Yeah. There are there is Prince George's County, which is a very black county, and then there is Baltimore City and Baltimore County, which is which is. You know, significant black population, but but about 50-50. Um, you know, Donna Edwards just lost pretty much everywhere where there were white people, <laughs> um, yeah. which yeah. is typically um, like the flip side of how like Bernie Sanders plays. Um, so I, to me, it was just, you know, I think she was not as well known a candidate as Ben Holland and she yeah. didn't have the same um, she didn't have the same establishment support. I mean, Barack Obama was basically telling people to vote for Van Hollen. And I, I thought she ran a good campaign, though, and w- was able to draw differences between herself and Van Hollen. Uh, had to get kind of in the weeds on progressive policy ideas, but an interesting race. So that's the Acela primary. Uh, goes to Indiana next. It is, as Zach says, the last real stand for the Never Trump movement. Trump wins in Indiana. He's probably got this locked up. Uh, as for uh, Sanders, too high a mountain to climb. Uh, and so it looks like Hillary Clinton will be the Democratic nominee. I know that's going to disappoint a lot of you out there. There's nothing I could do about it. I'm sorry. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. All right, peace out. And we're back. Um, so we've already talked about the the primaries of this week. Uh, joining us right now, Arthur Delaney. Hi. And Samantha Lockman. Hey. I just feel like we couldn't let this week pass without mentioning something else that happened. Something that I think is one of the more insane things I've ever seen a candidate for president do. And that is, of course, Ted Cruz, who is not going to win the nomination, naming a running mate. Oh, it so happened. And we were just getting over her, too. Like, we were recovering from her presence in the primary. We're talking about Carly Fiorina, of course, former Hewlett Packard CEO and and failed vice president, sorry, failed (laughs) presidential candidate. (laughs) I guess it remains to be seen if she'll be a successful vice presidential candidate or not. Um, And uh, uh, she she ran for the Senate in California uh, and and cut a lot of very crazy ads, but did not ultimately win. It's April, right? One thought I had is that 
maybe no one else wanted to be Cruz's running mate, and she was the only one, and he knew that. <laughs> but that still doesn't solve the timing question of why it's, it's so early. She had endorsed Cruz and had campaigned for him prior to this, so they were like pals. And Donald Trump insulted her appearance, so maybe she uh, yes. wanted to get revenge. Uh, and but 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 mm. <laughs> I am still at a loss. He doesn't have a path to the nomination, and it's looking more and more like. Trump will reach the magic number he needs to win the nomination outright. I can't believe this man named a running mate. It is, I just, uh, I've described this uh, uh, not as an act of politics, but as an act of cosplay. <laughs> it's, it just seems so strange. Some people are suggesting that naming Fiorina is meant to help Cruz in California, but I mean even if, he's not going to win California he's not even going to do well in California But he's like, clo- he's really close in Indiana Right. He's down by 6 percentage points in the polls. So maybe it helps him like marginally there so but he, it still doesn't seem like enough of a potential benefit <sighs> But isn't he, uh, isn't picking Carly Fiorina, doesn't doesn't she provide a wonderful foil to the uh, open sexism and misogyny? Cruz played of, the woman uh, card. He did. <laughs> isn't, I mean, isn't, isn't the woman card a good card to play against Donald Trump, who like really openly hates women and, and, and always I mean, has? And it means Trump will just continue to say nasty things about Fiorina. Right. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that smart? No, I mean, <laughs> what? How is it? How does it hurt Trump to insult Carly Fiorina? Do you think that now everyone's gonna be like, "Wait a minute! Uh, now we've gone too far. She's a vice presidential candidate now for some reason." You can't say that. That doesn't make any sense. No, to me. I, 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 from from what I have read, I, I believe that uh, Donald Trump's hatred of women has really harmed him, harmed his standing among most voters. Could it harm him even? Like, how much more damage could be done? Well, That's, that is a great <laughs> question. I'll, I'll share with you... Sorry, sorry, sorry. Go ahead, Arthur. I think it is a really bizarre decision. Like, it doesn't actually... There's so many different arguments to be made about why But it, the Cruz campaign is already cosplay. Let, yeah, let me play the woman card myself uh, and, and talk about what our, our esteemed ladies at the HuffPost pollster have said about this. They note that uh, Carly Fiorina, among Republicans has a fairly respectable uh, approval rating. It's a net positive 19 points. Terrific. Yeah, yeah. And and it would be great if it weren't for the fact that it's still lower than the approval ratings of Ben Carson, Mike Huckabee, Marco Rubio, and Donald Trump. Mm. Among, yeah, see, see. Among all Americans, she has a net approval rating of minus 18. Hmm. So she's almost as disliked as... Ted Cruz himself. Now, I actually wrote this week about the Veep Stakes, which I honestly didn't expect 24 hours later <laughs> for there to be a named vice president. But I wrote about it anyway. And maybe Cruz just hates Veep Stakes stories and it, you he didn't want to continue I'm, the suspense any longer. And for that, I'm OK with this. For that, I'm OK with this. <laughs> but political scientists have studied the effects that a vice presidential candidate have on the ticket. And a lot of people talk about how... Uh, we we get into a lot of discussions once vice presidents start being picked about how they can help in a certain state or uh, how they might bring uh, more voters from a certain uh, underserved demographic group to the ticket. Mm -hmm. And the relevant political science says that none of that actually happens. It makes no difference. That everyone still thinks about the top of the ticket and that they might be warmly predisposed to the right vice presidential candidate. But that, in the end, you're still voting for a president, not a vice president. And this morning, well, sorry, I, I used the word this morning, this week, we saw Ted Cruz out on the stump talking about job creation, job creation. Carly Fiorina laid off 30,000 people. It's like her business record at HP is not something that you really want to run on. It just like makes reminds everyone of how terrible it was. yes. And, and but she says it was good. She says it was good. Of course she says it was good. Why wouldn't she say it was good? She got a golden parachute. That's good. Boom, boom. Done. Good. I'm great. Another argument for why he did this was just to take the news cycle away from Donald Trump and distract from that and make everyone talk about Ted Cruz for a few hours. And here we are doing that. It worked. Yeah. Are. It worked. Yeah. Congratulations. But we are, we are tools ma- of Ted Cruz. Donald Trump is a master at taking it back. So he will, will be talking about him. So he'll again. continue to say woman card. A woman card. So... We we definitely have to call this sort of an act of desperation. Yes. 
But I feel like, well, back to your, your point about how VP picks might not actually help. I wonder if they hurt, though. Like, don't we think that Sarah Palin hurt John McCain? Certainly, but she was absolutely an extreme outlier in the, in the world of vice presidential right. candidates. Like, that was such she a turned out to hurt John McCain, but at the time of her selection, people were like, wow, cool. Yeah, yeah there was That definitely... was a conventional wisdom, but yeah. that is not what's happening now. People are like, ew, desperate. Yeah. Yeah, because I th- one of the things that, that's that's... Oh, boy. <laughs> it's just so insane. Okay. When you're a presidential nominee, when you've, when you've won the nomination and you're headed to the convention, you're obligated to pick a vice president because you want to show up at the vice, vice president of the convention, blah, blah, blah. At that stage in your life as a candidate for president, it makes sense. You have to pick this helpmate who will be alive if you die. Mm-hmm. But Ted Cruz is not a nominee yet. And to my mind, he's sort of making this, I don't. I think maybe he doesn't, obviously doesn't intend to, but by picking a vice presidential candidate at this stage, isn't he saying, I, Ted Cruz, as a candidate for president, have demonstrated to be woefully inadequate to the task of soliciting votes, and now I need someone else to come in and do it for me? Yes. But I feel it's also bizarre because wouldn't you think that if he's banking on there being a contested convention, he would choose someone who would help a lot of delegates pick him, That's right? a really good point. Who like, would that be? Someone who has delegates or who like... Like Marco Rubio? Or, or maybe if Rubio just says he doesn't want it, what everyone says who doesn't, they don't want it. So who knows if we can and how we interpret that bullshit. But I mean, he could have picked somebody who could... Bring delegates to his cause? It's someone who a lot of delegates would like, uh-huh. maybe. Even that. Like, do they all like Car- Carla Fiorina? Well, I mean, we don't know. He ha- I mean, more than anyone else, the Cruz campaign talks to delegates. Yeah. Oh, they've yeah. Been good at, they've been good at stealing. Or not stealing, but not winning, stealing. winning over delegates. Fair and Persuading square. delegates to his, his side. His campaign is the one that famously read John Sides and Lynn Vavrek's The Gamble and have yeah. bragged about reading it. Yeah. But yeah, and Donald I, Trump has no idea what they're doing. They yeah, exactly. No well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know what delegates are. <laughs> there's evidence now that maybe he's playing the inside game better. But yeah, yeah. up until like a week ago, he didn't know what a delegate was or yes. what it did. Yeah. But uh, the the thing that, that I think that's a really good point because Ted Cruz a has to imagine that he's only going to get the nomination through a contested convention. Yeah. Now that he's picked a vice presidential candidate, he's given up a big point of leverage. Yes. With delegates who might swing to his side, yeah, he's he's essentially said, "I'm not going to play the field. I'm not going to find out what what uh, the delegates want." Yeah, I'm going to now force them into a position where they have to consider this or nothing else. Yeah, uh, we got to go. Um, Bye. Thanks, thanks, Sam, for talking about this weird weird week with us. Happy to. All right, we'll be right back. We're back with Zach Carter. Hey, everybody. And joining us today, he is formerly of Media Matters. He is currently at Something I've Forgotten. I'm at People for the American People Way, where American I'm a senior Way. fellow. I'm also a host of The Agenda on Sirius XM Progress. Ari Ravenhoft. He is also the author of a new book, Lies Incorporated, which examines the nexus of big money and influential groups that spread deceptions throughout the political discourse and undermine progress. Ari, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jason and Zach. So this is an interesting book because you uh, simply sort of like set up 10 some odd different sort of agenda items yep. that are, are, are actually fairly popular and, and also very deeply meaningful to progressives. And you examine the roles that, uh, that, that, that big political donors play in funding weird groups like think tanks in order to spread what amounts to absolute falsehoods about various aspects of our politics. Yeah, I I mean, I worked backwards into it. That's the the funny thing. I came to this. This was actually a very organic process with this book. So I wrote the Fox book four years ago called The Fox Effect. Yeah. And when I was writing that, you know, you watch a lot of Fox News in addition to tearing your own hair out. You, (laughs) You recognize that 
the lies that are told on Fox News. Fox doesn't invent any of them because part of their business model is we don't really invent anything. We just talk about it right. a lot. We don't really do a lot of original reporting. We kind of just talk about stuff. Sure. Because uh, it's cheaper, easier to produce, and actually, for Roger Ailes, more better television. Right. Yeah. For him. I mean, I've talked about this before. The, yeah. the genius of Roger's, Roger Ailes is that he took this he took this concept of a news channel and then eliminated all the variables and what's traditionally the news product, the news. Right, which is expensive, by the way, and hard to produce. Right. And, and, but this is actually a part of that. So when and he Fox, created SOMA for conservative uh, viewers yes. to sort of bask in. And really, for liberals who like to hate watch it, to bask in, too. Sorry. Yeah. So it, here's so Ailes uh, created this world, right? And part of this world is spreading these lies and uh, about progressive policies, but Fox doesn't invent any of them. And I became kind of obsessed. And I was like, who is the patient zero of each <laughs> of these lies? And I started like literally be like, cause we talk about zombie lies. So who is patient zero of the zombie right. apocalypse? Yeah. And I started tracing stuff back and I kind of got obsessed with this notion of like, who are the, and I started coming upon these people and they were all kind of loosely connected individuals. A lot of whom you could trace into the tobacco, uh, uh, kind of fights, of that oh, age. Yeah, yeah. A lot of them kind of very popular in conservative movements, not very widely known among the broad public, but known among conservatives, popular among the CPAC set. And you find that these people, there was a world that actually profits both ideologically and monetarily. And that's, by the way, I think the most interesting thing I found in the book was that a lot of these people do it for ideology, not money. Uh, who make up lies in an attempt to distort public policy. So uh, I think most people who are listening to this podcast are familiar with lobbying. Lobbyists yes. typically have, uh, you know, get very low favorability ratings in, in polling data and like. Um, but what you're talking about here is something different than someone who just gets paid to go and, and try to persuade a congressman or something on behalf of a corporation. You're talking about a different type of, of right. complex. So when it's... They're connected but different because we think about corruption as money in politics. It's real easy. You go to the FEC reports. You go to the IRS. You see, you know, this person donated this money to this to this group. Right. Uh, lobbying. You can go look at the lobbying reports and see X person lobbied. Then there's like a third complex, which is a little bit more difficult, which is kind of the Washington, D.C. PR complex, where you have firms that represent people who basically, for all intents and purposes, are lobbying but aren't. But – when these people come in, that's how we define corruption. But lies are actually part of that corruption because when they go in and lobby, you can't just go to a member of Congress, well, vote for my piece of legislation because here's a check. Because that's actually illegal and lobbyists are very <laughs> cautious about at least trying to follow enough of the law where they're not going to go to jail. It's not a moral stand. It's like we just have to follow this enough so we're not going to get busted. So, But what they do do with members of Congress or the public at large is say, you should oppose the – you should – oppose uh, gun background checks because actually more guns equals less crime. They need some form of like logic that a congressman can take to their constituents and say, well, I oppose background checks because more guns equal less crime, not because the NRA cut me a sweet, sweet check. It's so, a bumper so sticker. How do they, it makes sense. Yeah. So how do they convince somebody of something that is, that is just patently untrue? It has to be kind of a willingness to believe. Yes, right? and it's really easy to if if to convince somebody of something that's untrue. And this isn't this has no ideology or or partisan barrier. I you know we can look. By the on, way, I'm seven feet tall and I can dunk a basketball. Totally true. Absolutely true. Yeah. Um, but that. you can e if people want to believe something because it conforms to their beliefs. If if you want to believe that government uh, regulation is bad, right? And you want to and it's the worst thing ever. And to solve global warming, you know you need a massive quantity of government regulations. It's much easier to say – it's very easy to believe, wait, global warming is not a problem. This actually is a liberal plot among, sci uh, among scientists to convince us we need more regulations because that falls into your worldview. So people believe lies that fit into their worldview. It's – in the book, I talk about the Reinhardt Rogoff deficit study. Yes. A lot of that – that study became so prominent – because it just fit the worldview of, frankly, D.C. elite media and D.C. elites so well that they were like, oh, my God, here it is. We have to believe this. And that study, to be clear, claimed that when government debt reaches a certain threshold, I believe it was 90 percent of a, the size of a country's economy, right. that things go up. Yeah, and things it turned out rails. to be a yeah. spreadsheet error. It right. Was just and, wrong. And that was yeah. was that that particular section is very interesting to me because uh, the, where Reinhardt and Rogoff themselves went wrong seemed to have been that they were bad at math. Yes. Um, but which is uh, a problem for economists. 
Of course, of course. But but <laughs> so many people took with it and ran it. So many polite, upstanding thinkers right. took that and ran with it. It was responsible for all kinds of destructive austerity policies in the United States and abroad. Especially abroad, by the way. Yo, yeah, definitely. Europe, Europe it, 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 you know, it was like a, the next European plague, as far as I'm concerned. But even after the logic collapsed, there was still an infrastructure that was helping to, like, Pimp it and primp it, right? Right, and this was non-part. Like Democrats were pushing this, Republicans oh, yeah, yeah, were pushing yeah, this, definitely. everybody was pushing this, saying, "This, you know, we have to do something." We got some multiple deficit committees on the strength of this nonsense, right? And and you point out another thing: like lies actually do damage, right? This Reinhardt Rogoff study that was pushed, we have the sequestration hurt people. We had the sequestration in Europe. You actually can look at some European unemployment and real pain that people suffered because of cutbacks in services. Based on this lie, you can look at in the book, I talk about death panels, obviously, and Betsy McCoy invented death panels. And I quote a Washington Post story that uh, has to interview two women who qualify for Obamacare subsidies and did not take Obamacare, even though they have massive out of pocket medical expenses. And the reason they don't take Obamacare is because essentially one put a gun up and said, pow, pow, basically uh, symbolizing death panels, that they're worried that Obama's going to kill them. Betsy McCoy is a really interesting case study because there was nobody who ended up more discredited for lying about uh, the Clinton uh, administration's attempts to pass a universal health care reform than Betsy McCoy. Her her work uh, scandalized the New Republic, forced an apology from uh, future editor and former editor Franklin. Twelve years later. Right, 12 years later, but still, it was well and set in amber that the woman was an inveterate liar. Yes. And yet, when she reemerged on the scene, she was more or less embraced as if she had done nothing wrong, and yet she was still spouting uh, eminently disprovable facts about Obamacare. Like, literally things that were not in the law itself. Well, it gets to a a few points. Betsy McCoy is an absurdly interesting character, because I... I think also she, she's like a comedian del art character. Right. And and look, Ezra Klein pointed this out in 2005. He said the thing about Betsy McCoy is she can lie, lie big and lie without apology, basically. And that's why she gets away with it. The problem is the media continue to give her a platform. And and by the way, this is the other note. Even media who tried to be responsible with her sometimes did the wrong thing. For example, John Stewart had her on his show yeah, and he spent 10 surreal. minutes just blasting her. And she, to us, it was like, this woman looks terrible. But if you look at things like that, you actually, and if you, social science says, when you put her out like that, more people end up believing her. Well, and yeah. she came out on stage with this prop, which yeah. was like, here, I've got this binder, well, which is Obamacare. And, yeah, and here's, here it is right here on the page where it says death panels. And like, no, it's not there. One way that as journalists, I think we see people lying um, is through is through the, the the publication of bogus and bunk studies. Yeah, and sometimes companies pay for these things directly, and it's disclosed. But y- your your book also points out the way the way companies can go through sort of seri- create create whole new middlemen to to fund the study and then pimp it out through a different PR agency. Can you describe sort of sort of that chain before we, we have to go? Sure. Uh, well, first, just think about this way. There's a reason that in 1973 there were only 100 think tanks in Washington, D.C., and now there are more than 300. And the reason for that is corporations are very willing to spend money, and it's not like some great charitable thing where they're like, oh, here's a lovely think tank, and we're sitting around a room. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are people who are buying studies with a purpose, some of them from eminent people like Tom Daschle uh, uh, and his uh, bipartisan policy institute, which is mm-hmm. Tom Daschle, Bob Dole, George Mitchell, et cetera. Uh, look, this is this is a problem in Washington, D.C., where through grant-making processes and through others, corporations can dictate public policy. And one of the things that I've become interested in since the book is looking at some of these contracts, and I'm doing a bunch of research into that right now, uh, that corporations actually have with their grantees. Um, and how some of these contracts stipulate you can't publish if we don't like your research. You can't, you can't show. And these are major think tank, major researchers. And, re, and some, in, some of this data is actually used by the federal government in determining mm-hmm. policy. And there's a huge industry. It's totally unregulated. And it's complete. And it's about creating false narratives and lies. There's an interesting uh, offshore drilling ruling from the Obama administration that relies on, I think, eight, eight or nine different studies. And most of them are funded by... The, the corporations that want to do more and shocking drilling. how they <laughs> how they uh, turn out you know uh, the the big study i point to in the book 
the House of Representatives in their DOMA briefings, and the House of Representatives was the lead uh, defendant in the DOMA case, they used uh, a study paid for by the Witherspoon Institute, a conservative think tank, that was at the time completely debunked already, completely false, co- to say that gay, the pe- children of, of gay couples are less, uh, have, less, have worse outcomes than the children of straight couples. They completely debunked, used it because it fit their ideology, and the, and that was paid for with $700,000 from this conservative think tank. And, of course, it had the findings that they wanted it to. Let me let, ask one last question. I'm sure. following up on something you said previously. Um, as you noted, uh, there's this social science theory that says the more we talk about a lie, the more it helps entrench the lie. Brendan Nyan, a yeah. political scientist, he talks about this all the time. But what are journalists supposed to do? It's in our very nature to see something that looks funny or wrong and find out the truth about it and then broadcast that truth. It feels awkward and strange to be in the position where I may know something that's right when everyone else is wrong about it to sit on it. Right. And, and I don't think that's the answer because I, and I don't think the answer is we shouldn't debunk or fact check. The answer is something you brought up before, which is Betsy McCoy, everybody knew she was a liar yet had her back and gave her a platform again. The answer has to be, if you have a track record of not telling the truth, you no longer get a platform to become the major liar. All the liars in my book, every single one of them, it's a repeat offender. It's a repeat offender. There yeah. isn't like a singular, this person only did it once. One time. <laughs> and and if, if you start creating an actual penalty for falsehood and an actual penalty for lies, we end up in a much better place. All right. Well, there you go. Let's start penalizing liars for once in our lives. So the book is Lies Incorporated and everyone should buy it. All right. Yes, it's available everywhere fine books are sold uh, and will hopefully it'll be in a library for those of you who prefer to rent their books. Ari Ravenhoff. Libraries are great, us by the way. They are. We should find more of Thank them. Thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. And we will be right back. And we're back, and we're going to return now to a discussion that we've talked about previously, uh, lead in the water, in the everything. Prompted by a major crisis in Flint, Michigan, America has turned more attention to the prevalence of lead and the danger of lead poisoning. And now it's a problem that more and more cities are being forced to confront because of the fear that another Flint is in the offing. Yeah. So uh, here to talk about it, it's uh, Arthur Delaney and... Zach Carter. Yep. And Arthur, you got you got some scoop, got some got some stuff to talk about today. I think people should realize what happened in Flint. Uh, you know, everyone thinks it's the lead. It was a lead poisoning crisis. If it had just been lead in the water in Flint, no one would have ever heard about it, not even the people who live there. Well, then that's a that's a that's a pretty bold statement. I mean, the uh, it, it was it was doctors in Flint who actually tracked the lead levels in the water down and, and blew up the spot. They wouldn't have thought to look if there hadn't been other problems with the water that were really upsetting people. Like, so, so for example? The water was brown and disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a pretty good so, example. So it was, like, gross, and it was causing all kinds of rashes. But if you're getting, if you're drinking water with lead in it, you can't taste it. You don't feel your IQ points disappearing if you're a little child. Right. And the other health problems caused by low levels, constant exposure, are just really varied and subtle. And you can't prove it was lead in any case. Like your high blood pressure could be caused by lead, but you can't prove it. And if even if you could... It appears that there have been, you know, like in, in D.C. where we live, there was a, there was a lead crisis a few years ago, and the city government. You've done some reporting on this. Yeah. They, they still they still refuse to uh, acknowledge the problem. Right? To this day, the director of D.C. Water denies that that even happened. Essentially, that anyone got hurt, even though peer reviewed research showed it was probably like twenty to thirty times worse than Flint. But anyway, in Flint, the water was brown and disgusting. People were marching in the streets for eighteen months. And that's what it took to get the researchers who confirmed that lead was both in the water and in kids' blood there. So, so does this mean that there might be lead in other places? Exactly. So, so journalists, activists, citizens are asking this question like all over the place. If you've got a Google alert for Flint water, you see all the local TV stations 
answering, uh, covering the local mayor, the water system, responding to these questions like, is our water safe? And they say yes. And even if they have high levels of lead in their water, uh, they say, well, we're dealing with it. <laughs> uh, even if they have examples of lead exposure in their population, they say, well, the lead could be from anything, paint or dust. Right. Which is true. It could. Uh, I mean, we were talking, it could even be from environmental factors like old gasoline in the soil. Right. It's, it's, uh, Atmospheric lead was like the major lead poisoning disaster of the 20th century. It's emerged as an explanation for rising and falling crime rates, which is really, I mean, Jason, I remember you brought this up at a podcast like maybe six months ago and I was like, okay, yeah, lead and gas. That was, that's crazy. But there's so much research. Oh yeah. This. Yeah. There's like uh, a, a, over and over the results have been replicated yeah, at I think city level, neighborhood level, state level, country level. And this, the, this is because lead poisoning doesn't just make you stupid. It also makes you violent and, and messes with parts of your brain that, that controls you your impulses. impulses. Yeah, that's right. Control. Yeah, that's right. Over at Mother Jones, Kevin Drum has been a leading reporter documenting this interesting uh, correlation between lead exposure and crime rates. And it's just pretty evident that as we started phasing out leaded gasoline, crime rates dropped. You, you you say that you know most public officials are dodging this. Is, is there is, is there anyone in, in any area in the country where where this is being taken seriously? Right. So, so everywhere they're just like we're complying with federal regulations, and people are like, well, that sounds pretty good. But what they, what they don't realize <laughs> is the regulation gives all kinds of wiggle room. And so this one town, Galesburg, Illinois, confronted the same problem. They said, yeah, you know, we're following federal regulations, and it probably would have blown over, except. The congresswoman who represents the area, Sherry Bustos, a Democrat, got involved and started nagging everybody and bothered the EPA. And the EPA, uh, it turns out, we found out this week that they, they started telling Galesburg, you better start handing out bottled water because your water has lead in it. Wow. Uh, and this is something that's not like more lead than is in lots of other places, but this is what happened when a lot of public pressure was brought to bear. I mean, it just does seem like the uh, the only thing that can really make the difference here is if someone with enough authority, be it political authority or community authority, just commits themselves to being a full-time thorn in the side of everybody for a long-term basis. This is, this is how it came to light in Flint. Uh, but you're still kind of describing what sounds to me like one of those classic problems from hell. There's lead everywhere. Uh, because it's impossible to pin down the source. It's easy to dodge accountability. Yeah. Um, I mean, the paint problem is diminishing as public awareness sure. continues, as remediation efforts continue. The soil problem is hard to deal with. It's really expensive to, like, dig up or cover all the public dirt that is out right. there. Um, so much dirt. Yeah, it, it gets in. The, it, this is this is just lead that that sort of filtered into the soil due to leaded gasoline. Yeah, right? just lead Being that was in the air yeah. fell down. Right. Uh, but you cover up lead paint. You you can paint over it, and you make sure you know you don't have uh, wooden windows that are causing friction through friction. This lead to be released Wait, as I, dust in your house. We've known that lead is bad for yeah. a long time. Uh, I mean, it just seems kind of stunning to me that people wouldn't have replaced lead pipes that are running water. Yeah, because the le lead was like really great for making pipes. So these hundred year old pipes are still working great. And there's like anywhere between <laughs> six to ten million of them serving thirty percent of American. Water systems. Like one problem is people wow. don't really know where they are because they were put in a hundred years ago, and like you would have had to write it on an index card and stuck it in a filing cabinet. <laughs> but like, it's not like the hardest <laughs> problem is dig them up. I mean, I think a lot of city officials would read "Let's test the water for lead" as "Let's open the door to us having to spend you know millions of dollars in lead abatement." So, so is there a is there a federal? A federal solution to this, where at least, yeah, there, at least no, on the there, infrastructure there is, side, is a testing could... regime that's federal law that cities have to follow if they have lead pipes. It's just that it's full of loopholes, and like Flint itself never actually officially ran afoul of it. All that's right. how easy it is to get. So it's it's really up to individual people to find out if they have a lead pipe in their own house. Ugh, the worst. Okay, well, uh, hopefully more. Uh, I love for more um, public officials to take the lead from. Uh, Congresswoman uh, Bustos and uh, return to their communities and get involved more heavily in what's going on there um, in, the, in the life of their communities. That, that is one, I think, unsung sort of um, 
like roles that members of Congress can play. Because, you know, we, ha we live in an era of like constant gridlock. But writing letters to regulators and being like, hey, we have a problem and applying pressure to regulators, that often does work. All right. Well, it sounds to me like there's no solution other than to stick in for the long haul on lead. So we will do the same with this podcast. Thank you for having me on the show. You're you're <laughs> you're a co-host, so I mean, you can literally just walk in and be on the show whenever yeah, you but want. But we talked about like my little thing. I, I know we it's did. Really, thank you. Arthur's it's, been covering this for a long time. He's got a lot of stories on this, and they're all good. So one please of the read them. people who routinely gives story ideas of the show. Yeah. Thank you. Anyway, Arthur, thank you, <laughs> thank you for your piddling contribution. We'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. We're always watched over by our loving angel, Caitlin Boguki. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by People for the American Way's Ari Rabenhoft and Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Samantha Lockman. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.